All right, the scripture today is John 9, 1 through 12. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. uh, This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then are your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, The man they just or the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. All right. Good morning. How's everybody doing? I don't know about you guys, but uh, I have like two cough drops up here because this pollen is kicking my butt. Every time I go outside, it's like we have a big oak tree in our front yard. Every time I go outside, it's like the oak tree shakes like a big wet dog (laughs) on top of me. So I was out there blowing yesterday, and I go, I go out one way, and when I come back in, I come like looking like a completely different person with red eyes and everything. Look like I went to battle or something. Um, so this is going to be an interesting sermon. Uh, I've, been like st- I've been on this jo- John vibe for a while now, um, and I love you guys a lot. And so I thought... I'm going to condense this sermon a little bit because this was going to be like an hour and a half long uh, sermon. Uh, Remember, I deconstructed all that. Um, But uh, so I love you guys too much. So I'm splitting this up into two parts. So Leo's got his first series here at Watermark. (laughs) Tommy can't have all the fun. So uh, second part will be next month. So it's going to be a pretty... I, I, it's gonna be pretty cool—a journey, interesting journey. There's some funky things going on in this in this passage, obviously. Um, so I'm gonna give you all some context, like we do, um, and then I'm gonna talk about um, the phenomenon of blame and scapegoating. Um, I'm gonna talk to you all a little bit about authorial intent. I know Tommy touched on that a little bit last last week. Um, and like what John's goal for this gospel, for his gospel is, and then we're gonna talk about saliva and mud. So for the kids that are still here, this is going to be, this is going to be a wild ride. So let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll start. Heavenly Father, thank you um, for your people. Thank you for your church, and, and thank you for the opportunity um, to share your gospel. Um, I don't take it lightly. Um, and so I just, I'm just grateful um, to be in the presence of my brothers and sisters and to share your word. And I uh, just pray that it would uh, enter in and... Uh, just be planted and cemented in us, Father, and that we can um, apply it to our lives and um, read the text in a way that um, gives you honor and glory and your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, last time, um, 
I mentioned how John's gospel is different than the other gospels, the synoptic gospels, meaning uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, Those are the synoptic gospels because they are synonymous in many ways. John's gospel came later. Uh, It came later on in the first century. Uh, It's just got an entirely different style. Um, He uses different language. And he's also dealing with um, different situations going on in his immediate context. Um, Scholars even talk about how there was like a Gnostic presence in some of these communities. And so John is is sort of addressing all of these things with his gospel. But John is also like super glued to Genesis. So there's a lot of themes in in John's gospel that that sort of, that take us back and point back to Genesis. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, But I'm going to take a page out of Tommy's book. And we're going to read John a little backwards today. It's not going to be the same way. It's, you can't do this. You can't do what, you, what Tommy's doing with Romans, with John's gospel. But, but in order to understand who John is talking to, you got to start in the end, right? Um, because if we start at the end in John, he gives us the purpose of his gospel. John waits until the end of his gospel to tell us why he wrote it and what was the purpose of his gospel. And so we're going to go to John 20. 30 to 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in his book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Um, New Testament scholar Richard Baucom um, completely sort of disassembles the whole idea that John was speaking to this Johannine community. Some of us might be familiar with that, um, where it was sort of these group of super, you know, serious adherents to John's gospel. Super, they, they just, they created this entire world and cre- their, their whole theology around the gospel of John. Um, but Bauckham argues against that. He actually thinks that this was actually John's gospel. John was actually writing, writing to a wider audience. It was, it was for wider circulation, not just for the early believing communities, but also for curious non-Christians at the time. So John uses signs and symbols and uh, clever metaphors throughout his gospel that point to his main goal, that people would believe Jesus was the son of God and that they would live as people who proclaim that he's the Lord. And so this, it has this whole allegiance vibe to his gospel. That's, that's sort of John's mission. Um, and I tend to agree with Bauckham. Um, just after, after studying this, he points to a lot of the main themes in John, which a lot of the main themes in John are, would sort of be universally understood by no matter if you were a Jewish Christian or a curious non-believer believer in the time. He, uh, John, uses, John uses themes like light and darkness, water, bread, uh, shepherds and sheep, judgment and witness, birth and death. John is doing what modern writers do when they want to appeal to a wider audience. Use language and symbols that everybody can sort of relate to. And as Balcom points out, John writes as if he is intentionally not trying to pigeonhole his message for one particular group. Even when he writes about heavily Jewish concepts and imagery, he does it in a way that non-Jewish people would understand. And so 
Knowing the intended audience of the, of the biblical writers helps to better understand the aim of, of the writer. And that's across the biblical text. The, it, 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 to understand the, what the, what the, who the audience was for the, for the writer is to understand the goal of the text. And so in biblical scholarship, we call this authorial intent. The biblical writers wrote for a specific purpose to a specific, to a specific I always struggle with that. Raise your hand if you're Latino and you struggle with specific. Um, usually, they write to a specific group, usually to teach or to challenge or to correct something going on in their time and place with their people. And in the New Testament, the majority of what we're reading is directed and sort of connected to the, these network of early Jesus followers, and so when we read scripture, our first goal is to discover what the text means to the original audience and then sort of bridge that gap, bridge the historical and cultural divide, and to try to discern what wisdom we can apply to our modern reality. That's sort of how we should approach the text. That's, that's how we approach the, te- the text in a healthy way. And this is hard because the ancient world, much like the modern world, has its own language and idioms and, and cultural imagination and sociopolitical dilemmas. And historically, the church has done a not-so-good job of taking all of this into account. Um, like some of you, I spent several years in a church that failed to do this. The Bible was like Plato. Um, you can shape it and make it into whatever you need it to do and say. So if you're struggling with finances and parenting, you simply turn to the verse that mentions those things and you make it say whatever it is you need it to say. Like raise your hand if that's something that you've experienced. Oh, okay, cool, awesome. Yeah, that's what I thought. And so this is just, this is just bad hermeneutics. Reading scripture detached from the original author's context and intended audience turns the Bible into something that it was never intended to be. And we have a long history of showing what happens when we do this. I know a couple um, several years ago who they had sense from God that they were called to plant a church in Puerto Rico. And when the time came to go to their pastor to, to, to let, the, let the pastor know that they, that had this feeling that it was time to leave, um, the pastor terrorized them with the Bible verse and told them that they would lose God's covering if they left. And I know this is an extreme example, but this stuff happens all the time in churches, and this is why it's important that we understand that when we approach the, the, the text, the scriptures, that we do it as lambs and not lions. And I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but I'm going with it. We do it as lambs and not lions. That we approach the text surrendered of our power and our modern imagination of what it should say. And we should approach the text reading it through the eyes of the cross. Amen? And I'm not standing here like pretending like I figured this out. But what we're doing is we're doing our best to study this stuff because the church has done a number on a lot of us. And this is one of the reasons why we have the painful religious experience classes that we do. Because a lot of us have been hurt by the church and a lot of us have been victimized 
by the Bible through people. And I care about the people of God. I care about the church. And I especially care about what image of Jesus is being reflected out into the world. And so we can do, you know, all we can do, and, I, and I, I feel like Tommy mentioned this recently, but I feel like we're on the same wavelength. All we can do is our best, and all we can do is work these things out together as a family and talk about them and surrender whatever power and privilege we have before arriving at the text. And like I said, we open our Bibles as lambs and not lions, surrendered of our earthly power, reading it through cross-shaped eyes, reading it through the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so, getting back to John, his mission with this gospel is for believers to grow in their faith, in their believing of Jesus as Messiah, as Lord, and for non-believers to turn towards the faith and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And this is why knowing to who and when this, these, these, these words were being written matter. Because believing in the ancient, because believing, like the idea of believing in the ancient world, isn't the same as believing in the modern sense as you and I have sort of come to understand it as sort of this very detached validation that sort of this mental ascent, right? For John, faith in Christ was a journey. It wasn't a one-time prayer. It wasn't a momentary, you know, acceptance of Christ into one's heart. It was a process. It was a growing into and a letting go of constantly. This was the image associated with believing in the ancient world, to take hold of the new and constantly being letting go of the old. And so, in fact, in John's gospel, the, the, the regular Greek word for faith, which is pistis, is nowhere to be found. He used the word pisteo. Pisteo. Say it with me. Pisteo. pisteo. Yeah. You guys are going to be learning some Greek today too, by the way. Um, so the word, he, the word he used, pisteo, he's talking about, um, this, is the, this is the common word for belief and faith in John's gospel. It's a word associated with covenantal faithfulness. The process, this process of undoing the idolatry in one's life, allegiances to the kingdoms of the world, these allegiances that keep us from fully seeing Jesus as Messiah and moving towards allegiance to the resurrected Jesus. For John, this meant interacting with the world around them through the lens of the cross. Believing was a journey. It was fully seeing. And we see this theme of seeing versus blindness often in John's gospel. And we're going to touch on it today. Fully seeing that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah, sent by the Father. And this idea, like I said, of seeing in John was a common theme, and he, like, pins it against blindness often because for John to encounter Jesus and to still remain loyal to the powerful of the world is akin to blindness. So John's not just addressing physical blindness in his gospel, but he's also, he's also addressing sort of social blindness and emotional blindness and this is why John, more than the other Gospels, focuses on Jesus' miracles and signs. Because these are the things that he believes will lead people to turn away from the corrupting powers of the world. Because miracles were a universal language in the ancient world, in the first century especially. Something that even Jews and, something that Jews and Gentiles could sort of 
could sort of ride with. They, they, they could get behind the spiritual because there was a high view of spirituality in that time. And so with John 9, we come to this text knowing that he's detailing this encounter with the Christians and curious non-believers in mind. As lambs, remember, surrendered of our power and desire to make it into what we want it to be, reading, reading this text, when we approach the Gospel of John, reading it, knowing the audience, but more importantly, reading it through the cross. And if we read into the text something that doesn't pair with the self-giving, indiscriminate love of Jesus, then we know something is off. And perhaps that's where we reach out to trusted brothers and sisters and work through whatever, whatever it is that, that is keeping us from seeing Jesus in the, in the, in the scriptures or in our interpretations. And so all of this, because this is a passage, and I, I wanted to preface it before we got into the actual passage, because this is one of those passages that has been tossed about and used to make God, make, make him out to be something that he's not. And I'm all for a healthy reading of scripture that can help us heal and recover what we've lost of our faith in the past. And so in John 9... We're told that this man was born blind from birth. This is actually a Rembrandt. Isn't that cool? I didn't know Rembrandt did black and white. Then again, I don't know much about Rembrandt. So um, what makes the situation even more precarious for this blind man is the social order in that time. If you were blind or disabled, the common notion was that you were cursed, that your sins and your parents' sins had finally caught up to you, that your sins or or your parents' sins had finally caught up to you. And because of this, you couldn't enter the temple or the local synagogue. In fact, many of the blind and lame would camp near the temple begging. And so Jewish religious life was sort of closed off to you if you were blind or impaired or disabled in, in some way. And also contact with the blind or disabled, could result in social exclusion for you. In fact, there were only a handful of designated people that were given religious permission to care for and move these people about. And so this man, this man wouldn't be used to people really noticing him, let alone having people come up to him and talk to him. He was a beggar who would go up to passersby, never, never the other way around. Rarely would you see, rarely would, the, rarely would this person, especially this man, feel the warmth of having somebody come up to them and strike up a conversation. That was just not a common thing for these folks. But in John's gospel, Jesus approaches him. And Jesus sees him and notices him. And later on in the passage, he touches him. In the very place that has caused him so much pain. And I assume for the first time in his life that this man, this was the first time that he's been trusted with instructions to go to the pool and wash. And what Jesus did here was, at the time, was really radical. Some of us know people like this, people who go out of their way to notice you, to see you, people who choose to withhold judgment about someone before even meeting them. And I know many of you in here have that gift. It is a gift. 
and we can learn from you. When everyone else is passing judgment, jumping to conclusions, and pointing the finger, these folks are like, wait a minute. There's more to this person than what we see on the surface. There's more to this person than the situation that we're faced with. And so they see the trauma, and they see the injustice, and they simply notice. No quick fixes. They just notice and offer the warmth of their attention. They're simply present to the brokenness. And many times, this is all that the wounded need just to be seen and just to be noticed, not to be looked past. And so Jesus' proximity to this man would have probably troubled the disciples. In fact, it did. They might have even passed by this guy at times before, never really noticing him, never really seeing him. And in a lot of ways, this blind man was surrounded by blind people who choose not to see him. And so in this story, the blind man is not the only one that's blind. And this is the deeper type of blindness. This is the type of blindness that John is really trying to emphasize in this passage. The type of blindness that causes us to look back past the pain and past the injustice. Because we fear it might reveal something wrong in us. Or reveal something wrong with the politics or traditions or social structures that we benefit from. So in verse 2... The disciples asked the question that several factions of ancient Judaism would have asked in the time. I don't, I don't blame them because this would have been the common question to ask. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? He's, they're probably saying this in front of this man. Imagine like hearing that. Might not have been the first time that he's heard that, but imagine what an insensitive thing to say. And so this is the question that sort of orbits this entire passage. It's a question that people would have asked because the prevailing belief was that sin and sickness were connected. And it's not too far off from how many still believe. We see suffering, we see the weak, we see the poor, we see the marginalized, and we turn their situation into a theological riddle. We look for someone or something to blame instead of seeing the humanity of the person and realizing that God, through his spirit, is present. But these are the power dynamics that we play. Because as long as our focus is on who to blame, we don't have to worry about being the eyes and ears of Jesus. And I say eyes and ears because far too often we talk about being the hands and feet of Jesus. But sometimes the first thing that God calls us to is to see and to listen and to notice, and to pay attention, and to learn, and to be the faithful presence of Jesus. And I'm not saying that God doesn't call us to take action, because he does. But we can't help if we aren't willing to see the humanity of people. We can't see their humanity if our default posture is blame and scapegoating, and turning them into some theological problem to solve. I remember in 2010, uh, when the earthquake struck Haiti, devastating the island and the people and, and the death toll. I mean, at the end, it was like over 300,000 people had died. And my wife, who's Dominican, was born on the other side of Hispaniola. Um, I remember she got calls from her family saying that they would feel the shock waves in Santo Domingo, which Santo Domingo is sort of 
in the center part of the island close to the east. That's how far the shockwaves went. And I remember hearing a well-known televangelist blame the earthquake not on the fault line that runs through the island, but on the Haitian people. Blaming the disaster on Haitian idolatry. People are dying and we're looking for someone to blame? And I remember this discussion going on for months following the earthquake and, and the calls to prayer, but, but all of the calls to prayer were mentioned, but it was always sort of preceded by the idolatry talk. And that's not helpful, nor is it biblical. And so famed philosopher and social scientist Rene Girard does some fascinating work on this concept of scapegoating because he mentions how victimization has long been used to form societies. And Gerard argued that whenever there's a crisis or an injustice, the natural social hierarchies would be disrupted, equalizing everybody on the same level. And Gerard points that since the dawn of civilizations, humans really like their hierarchies, and their class systems. And so historically, a common resolution to the madness of having a, player, a fair playing field, I'm being facetious, um, has been to agree that a single person or group is to be blamed for the crisis. And that's how you destabilized, that's how you destabilize the equality. And they become, that one person or that group becomes the scapegoat. So scapegoating has historically been one of the most efficient ways to unite people around a common cause. When we see the suffering of the world, uh, we look for someone or something to blame because as long as we can blame someone else, we can shift it away from us. This is what we do. We see injustice in the world and we look for someone else to blame. And by doing so, we absolve, our, we absolve ourselves from responsibility. And so Gerard believed that humans did this instinctively and that we should all work to learn how to not scapegoat, to work together through mutuality and compassion to restore the brokenness of the world. This is Rene Gerard, social scientist who said this, not a New Testament scholar. Now this term scapegoat originates from the ancient Hebrew practice found in Leviticus 16 when Aaron the priest would take two goats and cast lots over them on the day of atonement now both goats were kept alive but one goat will be a sin offering to God and placed before the presence of God in the temple or the tabernacle and the other will be called the departing goat or the goat that will flee or we let go, or the scapegoat, the, the, the goat that goes away essentially. And so Aaron would lay his hands on the goat and the sins of the community would sort of be passed symbolically onto the goat and they would release them out into the wilderness, removing the sins of the community. That's where the term scapegoat comes from. Now, sort of alongside this was the ancient Jewish, uh, was that the ancient Jewish people sometimes connected sickness and sin that God judges sin sometimes with sickness. And so this idea sort of became a part of ancient Jewish thought. 
Now, fast forward to the first century and, and John 9 and, and, and the disciples' question is based on this, these long-standing beliefs that the sins of a person or their parents could, could somehow make somebody sick and impair them in some way. And I've spoken to, to several of you, and I know that many of you come from traditions that believe this. After our son was born, um, my wife and I, we tried for three years to get pregnant. Um, and then we were at a prayer service one time, and my wife had, had asked that they pray for us because it had been three years, and there were, you know, we, weren't, we weren't figuring this thing out. Um, and then one person had come up to us and asked us if we had any hidden sin that we hadn't repented of. Needless to say, this devastated my wife. I became furious. Uh, I almost stopped being a nonviolent Christian. Um, it was just, it, it just really hurt. Um, and I've heard a ton of similar stories like this over the years. None, and, and, and honestly, none of that resembles Jesus. And even theology aside, it's just a really insensitive thing to say that, that only does harm it, it's, it, it's no good. And we have to help our brothers and sisters when it comes to these things and how to be the faithful presence of Jesus and not pass judgment. But Jesus' answer in John 9, 3 sort of reorients this sort of thinking. He says, this is his, his response to the disciples' question. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born so that God's works God's works might be revealed in him. But here's the thing. This statement is also pretty loaded, if you haven't noticed. Because it, Jesus sort of solves one problem, but the translators create another one with this verse. Because it implies that God is behind the blind man's condition and is using it to bring glory to himself. And we can see how that's problematic. And it's, it's out of this verse and others like it where we hear many, many in Christian circles say the famous cliche, like everything happens for a reason. Um, that when bad things happen, God in the end will get the glory. But, but rather than getting into the theological weeds on this, let's, let's look at what the Greek of what Jesus is actually saying here. Most English translations of this verse have Jesus answering the disciples' question with an explanation that says that God made the man blind solely so he could be healed later in Jesus' life. But more recent scholarship has looked at two words in that verse. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna geek out here with the little Greek. So, I love you guys. Um, can you see that? Yes, perfect. So, um, two words, so that. That's where the problem is. It's, it's, it's this Greek participle, hina, which has different functions in Koine Greek. Koine Greek was the, was, was the language of the New, the New Testament was written in. They realized about half of it, half of, the, of hina's usage in scripture is used to signify the purpose or result of something. It's like saying, I took my car to the mechanic so that I could get the timing belt fixed. Same Sort of the same, same role, same function. But henna has also been used in scripture as an imperative command. When it's paired with a subject, this is, this is like English 101 in high school, guys. Um, imperative command, when it's paired with, with a subjective verb in an independent clause. 
Hey, hey, where my teacher's at? <laughs> um, which is the case in John 9, 3. When this happens, henna becomes an exhortation or a proclamation. So instead of, but this happened so that the works of God could be displayed in him, the translation is more like this. Jesus said, this man, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but let the works of God be made known in him. And actually, if you read the CEV translation, they get, they get pretty close to this translation. This changes everything. So, that, so using this translation, Jesus is actually denying the basis of the disciples' question. Now his blindness is not the result of his sin or his parents, but let God work in him. Stop looking for someone to blame. That lens, that way of thinking is no longer useful here. This man doesn't need to hear that. None of this is about sin. God is at work in him like he is at work in all of us. And so Jesus undoes this entire way of thinking and viewing of God and the world around them and gave them a new imagination of God and humanity and their interaction with one another. And he does it all in front of this man. And that's my favorite part of this story. That this whole thing is happening in front of this blind man. Imagine how he must have felt to finally hear someone take his side. To finally be seen and noticed and dignified and, be made, and not to be made out to this theological puzzle for someone to figure out. But to be in the presence of someone who isn't afraid to be near him and touch him. Just imagine what this man must have felt hearing these words. And then Jesus spits on the ground, makes mud, and places it on his eyes. As if this man couldn't see before. Now he got, now he got mud on his eyes. So, you know, um, I don't know if you guys saw this, but I think it was like a year ago, there was a pastor who tried to simulate this at his church. So disgusting. Um, like... Read the room. I mean, it, it was I, I. It was gross, and um, it just it didn't make sense, and it, it took some things out of context, and uh, yeah, house churches be spirit led. Um, so there are many different interpretations of this particular point in the passage. Um, some proposed Jesus was using a common, which it was, there was, this was a common Jewish medicinal practice that involved saliva and dirt. And you'd create a paste and you'd place it on the wounded parts. This, this, was, this is true. Um, others have argued that this is a picture of the divine and the earthly characteristics of Jesus' life. But, but I think what we're seeing here by Jesus is a common rabbinic practice called remez where rabbis would teach something with multiple layers of meaning. And I think more than any of the other gospels, John's gospel uses a lot of this remez. And we'll talk about that a little bit. A lot of these sort of double meanings and, and multiple layers and stuff. We see parables sort of function this way. In John 8, when the Pharisees and the scribes bring, bring the woman uh, that was caught in adultery to Jesus to test him, and Jesus like completely ignores him and just starts writing on the ground. Um, and what he actually writes on the ground is, is this is a remez. 
This is a remez. People often ask, like, what was it that Jesus wrote on the ground? Because it's not really mentioned what he writes on the ground. But many scholars think that Jesus acted out the passage in Jeremiah 17, where the sins of those who have forsaken God are written out on the ground. This is a remez. And rabbis did this all the time when they were teaching. They would teach something and they would add different layers to it. And then a well-trained rabbinic student would have to sort of constantly pay attention to the teaching because the rabbi might, might sneak in a clue on some passage in the Old Testament. So in John 9, 6, Jesus is acting out the passage in Genesis 2 where God takes dirt and shapes man. Here Jesus forms mud, and the early Jewish Christians would have been like, oh yeah, I see what Jesus is doing here. And he's connecting himself to, to the creator God. Remember, John's goal is messianic. And then they would have remembered back to John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh. And so all this points to Jesus' messianic rule. And in fact, New Testament scholar Leon Morris, in his commentary on John, mentions that the patristic writers, which were the early Christian scholars and thinkers of the time, they they saw the mention of mud in this verse as a reference to Genesis 2-7. This was the predominant view early on in the church. So the passage is viewed as this work of new creation, a work of the creator. Now remember why John wrote the gospel, to circulate the message of Jesus as Messiah for the people to grow up and live in allegiance to Jesus as Lord. It's pointing to Genesis when God made the dirt made man out of the dirt of the ground. And it's, it's communicating to John's audience the messianic mission of Jesus. But, but at the same time, giving us a redefined image of the Messiah. Because John is also really interested in changing how people, especially the early Christians, think about power and their messianic expectations. First century Jewish people expected a Messiah who would rule as the old kings of Israel and take over their enemies through force. But throughout John's gospel, and especially here with this blind man, John has written his own remez, and it is that the Messiah is on the side of the historically scapegoated. Jesus is on the side of the poor and the suffering. He's on the side of the victim. He's on the side of those who we look to blame through our politics or our short-sighted theology or our ideas of what society should look like or, 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 or our concept of power. John has his own remez in this encounter with the blind man. And it's that God has come in the flesh and is creating a new humanity called away from the sort of blindness that keeps us from hearing and seeing the humanity of those that we'd much rather look past. Those that we'd much rather pick apart even before hearing their story. Those we're afraid to stop and listen to and notice. And perhaps there are people in this sanctuary, and I say perhaps just to sort of play it safe, but I know that there are people right here, right now, just in talking with you all, that have far, far too often felt like this man that you've been looked past, that you've been the victim of someone's bad theology or bias. And allow me to just say, Jesus sees you and he hears you. But also, 
Some of us have been on the other side of this. In fact, chances are most of us have been on both sides. I admit that I have. But I believe that, I believe Jesus also says to to you, let the works of God be revealed in you. Remember, our faith is a journey of letting go and growing into, breaking away from the old and holding fast to the new. And Christ's likeness, and I, I sort of mentioned this during the dedication, Christ's likeness is worked out in community, around a table. It's shaped through the sharing of stories. It's shaped through difficult, having difficult conversations with the spirit present to help us see and hear one another. And this is why we make such an emphasis about the table, because it's at the table where we sense the spirit of God. And I, I often get asked, Leo, how do you know the spirit is present? My response for the last six years has been, if stories are being shared, the spirit is present. Amen? Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Um, thank you for my brothers and sisters, Father. I, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for being, being so present in our lives. And sometimes we don't catch it. Sometimes we miss it. But your faithfulness so far beyond what we're willing to do. Help us to grow in our faith, to grow in our belief. Help us to detach ourselves from all of our allegiances and help us to attach ourselves to you, to grow in our allegiance that we can grow to the point where in all things we could say Jesus is Lord. In your name, amen. If you guys could stand and repeat the Lord's Prayer with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Be blessed, everybody. Have a great Sunday.